0: Professor Swers, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Why don't we start with your background? Where did you start off, the arc of your career so far, and uh, where you are now?
1: So I got into the field of political science through Uh, and and the area that I study, which is Women in Congress, because I had an internship while I was in college with the National Women's Political Caucus. And they were having at the time their 20th anniversary convention. And they were an organization that was created uh, by several big women's movement activists, but it was a bipartisan organization that was focused on electing more women to Congress, both Republican and Democrat. And so as part of my internship, I was staffing their 20th anniversary convention, which meant I got to observe uh, Gloria Steinem and Shirley Chisholm. Uh, These were important figures in the women's movement. Shirley Chisholm was the first Black woman elected to Congress. And I got to carry her bags into her hotel room. So uh, I followed her there and got to talk to her. I you know, saw Bella Abzug speak and Geraldine Ferraro, who was the uh, first female vice presidential candidate, uh, Susan Molinari, who was a Republican Congresswoman at the time from New York. And I was just very interested in the things that they uh, were talking about and why they felt it was necessary to elect more women to Congress, that they would bring this different perspective. And they were looking at all levels of, of office. And so that left a big impression on me that, particular internship. I, after I graduated college, I became high school teacher, but I had in the back of my mind that I might want to get a PhD uh, and I wanted to study women in Congress. And so in in 1992, that was a huge election for women in Congress. People call that the year of the woman and you had just enough women enter Congress to do some data analysis and not just uh, anecdotal interviewing. So I kind of hit graduate school at the right time. Uh, so that I could do a a more nuanced study, and while I was in graduate school, I was also very influenced by a book that I know uh, you've probably heard a lot about, which is Congress and the Electoral Connection by David Mayhew, and in that book, he argued that it really doesn't matter who you elect to Congress, because all members of Congress need to serve their constituency, and so really, it should not matter if I'm electing a Democrat, if I'm electing a male or a female Democrat. If I'm electing Republican, a male or female Republican should give me the same kind of representation because they need to represent their district's interests and what the district wants. And I thought, well, that made a lot of sense. But then I'm looking out into the real political world and I'm seeing that at this time, and this is before super PACs, uh, Emily's List was a political action committee that was raising tons and tons of money specifically to elect female pro-choice Democratic candidates. And I thought, well, that's strange. Why would they spend all their time raising money to elect this particular group of candidates when under the Mayhew argument, uh, a male, democratic pro-choice candidate should get you basically the same kind of representation. And they raised so much money that they were at the top of political action committees, right there tied with the National Rifle Association, which at that time was also one that would raise a lot of money. So that was sort of the, the question that got me into graduate school and led to my dissertation, was to try to unpack this idea of, does it make a difference in policy or other areas if you elect women or not, once you account for the things that we know predict congressional behavior, which are, you know, your party affiliation, your ideology, your district characteristics. So these were all the kinds of questions that I was interested in coming into graduate school. And the fact that this 1992 election occurs at that same time, bringing in a whole new group of women into the house and Senate sort of made it the ripe time for uh, doing some data analysis of this kind of question. So that's how I uh, get into the field. After I graduated uh, Harvard in 2000, I spent two years teaching at Mary Washington College in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And then I moved over to Georgetown University, which is where I am now and have been for about the last 20 years.
0: Fantastic. So you talked about why specifically you focused on women. Um, what brought you to the politics area in general, like the whole system? What was it that that drew you in, even at an earlier age when you were working in the uh, in that nonprofit sector?
1: So uh, when I went to college, I was interested in. I was always interested in policy more than politics. So I did an internship with the Department of Health and Human Services. I worked on some policy there uh, related to Head Start. Uh, So I was interested in issues concerned related to children, related to families. And when I did the internship with the National Women's Political Caucus, I was interested in it from both more of a historical perspective and a, a policy perspective, even though the organization itself was a lot about politics and trying to encourage more women to run for office and in fact in that year their keynote speaker for that conference was Bill Clinton who at that time was the governor of Arkansas and was clearly you know using uh, this speaking engagement to you know get the support of uh, women's rights organizations and that whole part i didn't really realize at all and at the time i thought wow, this guy's speech is really long and, and boring. So uh, clearly I did not have my finger on the pulse of campaign politics. Uh, so it was better that I would go into the study of it and the, and the study of policy.
0: Excellent. Well, let's go to the fundamental question you were asking, You know, and, and just hit right on it if, in the beginning, if, if that makes sense. So your question seemed to be, do policy, is policy different when there are women versus when there are not? Uh, and I guess we can ask that question from the House perspective and the Senate. So, why don't we start with the House and then move over to the Senate? What did you find?
1: Right. So, my first book, uh, The Difference Women Make, The Policy Impact of Women in Congress, was about the House. And so, what I decided is again, I was trying to figure out do women focus more, are they advocating more for specific policy compared to men? once you account for the kind of district that you represent, your party affiliation, your ideology. So I decided, well, I'll just analyze through all the stages of policy development. So I looked at bill sponsorship. I looked at the bills they co-sponsor. I looked at the amendments they were offering in committee on specific legislation. I looked at the amendments they were offering on the floor. So I was basically following policy through the process. and. What I found was your biggest differences occur in the agenda setting stage so that women were more likely to devote resources to offering bills that were related somehow to women, children and families. And you might divide these pieces of legislation into things that deal with social welfare issues, which are sort of traditionally associated with women, and then things that deal with Feminist issues or issues that people uh, consider to be more directed towards women, more women's rights oriented issues, and so you saw differences in both of those those areas. uh, Particularly at that agenda setting stage, but it mattered if you were in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, it mattered if you were in the majority party uh, or the minority party so. For the democratic women they were particularly focused on women's rights issues they focused on social welfare policy when democrats were in the majority which they were in the time period i was studying which was the 103rd congress which was what was elected in 1992. but then they there were no gender differences once you got to the 104th congress among democrats in the sponsorship of social welfare policy because now they were in the minority and they didn't have access to that policy agendas they were still doing more women's rights policy They were particularly uh, upset and and, uh, concerned about Republican efforts that they saw to restrict women's rights. And so they were very active in offering that kind of legislation, but they didn't do as any any more or any less than Democratic men when it came to social welfare policy once they were in the minority party and could not uh, set the agenda uh, since they were not majority party members. For Republican women, when they got the majority, They also, though, were more likely to be active on social welfare policy. So they did not do more when they were in the minority in the 103rd Congress, they did do more when they were in the majority party in the 104th. They did less on the feminist type policies when they get into the majority party because the Republican party, that was not the focus of their agenda. Those were considered Democrat issues. And so if you wanted your colleagues to advance any number of legislation that you had on various types of of policy areas that were good for your district or important uh, priorities of yours, you wouldn't wanna upset them by pushing feminist legislation that was not gonna go anywhere. So they did less of the feminist policy when they were in the majority than they had done when they were in the minority, they did more of the social welfare policy when they were in the majority. So that's kind of the main difference I found, sort of in the in the sponsorship area, and then generally, uh, it is the case that women act as spokespersons on these particular on issues related to women because. Uh, other members consider them to have moral authority on these issues. They make better spokespeople to the public when you're trying to, to sell an issue or something like that. And we still see that to this day. So when they uh, talk about Violence Against Women Act, uh, it's usually the the female members on both sides that they have out there uh, speaking to the public, acting as the, the advocates for particular policy areas. Uh, abortion policy, of course, is an area that uh, is very much discussed within Congress and will be even more shortly when you get the the Supreme Court decision.
0: So how about on the Senate side?
1: So on the Senate side, I did another study where what I wanted to know there, so whereas on the House side, I basically followed legislation through the different phases. On the Senate side, I wanted to focus more on, uh, as a Senator, I have the responsibility for an entire state so would that mean that I there's gonna be less difference among senators because everybody's got a lot to do being focused on an entire state, but I also have more leeway as an individual. In the House, your policy agenda is very focused on what is your committee assignment? And you can't really, as one of 435, influence a lot of areas outside of that committee assignment. But in the Senate, they get multiple committee assignments. And they can theoretically command more media attention and influence policy on a wider variety of things. So I wanted to see then as a Senator, would gender have more of an effect because now I can pursue uh, policy interests in these areas uh, if I want to in more areas, or should I see less of an effect because I have so much responsibility uh, as one Senator for the entire state, maybe you know my plate is too full. And what I generally saw was that, again, the women members were more interested in, in putting issues related to women, children and family onto their policy agenda, so they would do more on these things. And some of that comes from their personal background, their lived experience, some of that comes from the expectation of constituents, or interest groups that thought that the women might be more approachable on, on a certain subject. So. Um, when it came to issues related to things like uh, sexual assault in the military, uh, some of the advocacy groups would say, "Well, they expected that at that time, Kay Bailey Hutchison of Texas, that she might be more uh, more willing to meet with them, right, than than maybe a, a male Republican on the committee or something like that." So it's a combination of their own interests, the expectation of constituents, the expectation of advocacy groups that led them to do more in these in, in this policy area. But then I also wanted to look outside of the issues of women's rights and see are there other differences when it comes to other responsibilities that senators have. So I looked at defense policy because at the time that I was studying was the time of the Iraq war. uh, And there's this view that that women are more pacifists which possibly comes from the fact that Jeanette Rankin was the first uh, female member of Congress And she voted against both entry into World War I and World War II. So women get a reputation as pacifists. But what I found was actually that that was not the case. So when you looked at the voting on the Iraq war, it was entirely determined by uh, the members ideology, and really had nothing to do with their gender. women were not less expert. So you, there is this notion that Democrats are less expert than Republicans. The issue is more of a Republican-owned issue, national security. Uh, and then that might be compounded if you're a Democratic woman, because it's thought that women are uh, less expert on military issues than men. But I found that men and women were equally active and that actually what goes on in the Senate is they are a lot more focused on how military policy impacts their state, uh, then you might first think. So of course, everyone is interested in a particular large question, say today of Ukraine, but they're also very interested in, uh, are you considering closing the base in my state? Uh, Will you want to invest more funding in aircraft carriers, let's say, or some type of shipbuilding? So I live in the state of Virginia, uh, so here, our senators will support more, uh, more ships, more shipbuilding. You know, because we have Newport News and uh, these bases and areas. So there's a there is actually a lot of constituency focus in what they do related to uh, the military. But the one area where I did find difference was that the female members were more likely to support and advocate for social welfare type policies related to the military. So more veterans benefits, uh, more money to support the, the education of people in the military or childcare benefits for military families. So those type of supports to help military families, you are more likely to see female senators uh, getting on than the, than the male senators, even though of course uh, many, many do support these, these types of proposals. So that's what I found in the area of defense policy. And then the third area that I looked at was the area of judicial nominations. And at this time, I was looking at would gender matter in whether you supported uh, Supreme Court nominees, because Supreme Court nominees are really important to your party's president. So therefore, as a member, I should always support my president's nominees regardless of any particular issues surrounding the the nominee. So I was looking at the most gendered of nominations at that time, which was the replacement of Sandra Day O'Connor. So Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman on the Supreme Court. And when she retired, George W. Bush needed to find a replacement. And there was a lot of pressure on him to replace her with a female nominee. He ultimately attempted that with a woman named Harriet Myers, he then ends up withdrawing later because uh, various conservative judicial organizations didn't feel she was going to be conservative enough. They weren't sure about her track record. So he ultimately withdraws her nomination uh, and settles on someone else. So then we have uh, Justice Roberts and Justice Alito being nominated in this time period. And what I wanted to know was, and I should say that Justice Rehnquist passed away, so then Justice Roberts becomes the nominee for the Chief Justice, and Justice Alito is the Sandra Day O'Connor replacement. And it's a particularly interesting one because Sandra Day O'Connor was a a pivotal vote in an abortion case that was was fairly well-known, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, where she kind of helps create this idea of an undue burden standard. Uh, as to how you regulate abortion and when state legislatures could, could adopt new restrictions. And Justice Alito had been on the circuit court that also heard that case and he made an opposite decision than she. So uh, he was more supportive of, of restrictions than she was. So it was, I wanted to look at, do the members get involved in terms of their votes? Do they vote differently? Uh, And then what issues do they say are determinative of their vote? So all the senators will make floor speeches and talk about why they can or they can't support a particular nominee. And what I found generally was if you're a Republican, you needed to support the, the, the president's nominee. So even if Olympia Snow at the time was a Republican from Maine and so was Susan Collins, even if the two of them were voting against at that time, uh, legislation to ban partial birth abortion, they were going to vote in support of the Supreme Court nominees, and that would be because it is more important to support your party's president's nominee. You will not be thanked by the opposite side for uh, for voting against, but you will be condemned by your own party and you know lose support and lose lose fundraising. So they they supported. Uh, Alito and and Roberts. And then I wanted to look at the Democratic side to see uh, what would be determinative of those votes. So uh, Alito was pretty uniformly opposed by Democrats. And that's largely because uh, he was replacing a a swing justice. Uh, And Roberts, he, the support was divided. So he was replacing Rehnquist. So you weren't moving the ideological balance of the court, but so, but it was divided and gender did have some effect. The women were a little bit more, were built less likely to support him uh, than the men. And there was a difference in what they would say were the reasons. So we know that Roe versus Wade has long been a litmus test. And so generally every Democrat might make some reference to that. But the, Democratic women would go beyond the issue of abortion when they were talking about Alito's records and Robert's records, and they would reference other cases and other issues that they had decided uh, related to family leave policy, related to uh, the concept of pay equity, Title IX, um, jurisprudence, these kinds of things. So they incorporated more issues related to women and families in their reasoning as to why they were opposing uh, than some of the men talking about why they were opposing. So one thing maybe that some of the men might have focused on a little bit more was uh, the the idea of executive authority and and uh, having too expansive of a view of executive power and, and things like that. So that whole issue, you know, of course, you know, continues to today. So when people uh, were looking at why Susan Collins supported Brett Kavanaugh, for example. Uh, you know, if you look back at, at, at this research, you can see that, you know, she should have been expected to support Brett Kavanaugh because that was the nominee for her party's president.
0: So it sounds like the, the policy differences you've seen on the Senate and the, and the House side were all related to women's and children's issues or family issues. Um, and in terms of the, what, what made them go into those policy areas, could have been their own personal uh, points of view, or their, they, they came in with those agendas, potentially, or, or that point of view. Uh, it could have been maybe they were elected in part because of their views, right? That, that played into their election. Or the third area you mentioned is there could have been more a target of special interest that related to those issues since Uh, they, those special interests assumed that they were a shortlist target for that, for those kind of ideas. So in those three areas, when you kind of went through them, is there anything that was like a smoking gun for any of those areas? Or is it always kind of a mix of these things that are very hard to untangle?
1: So I do think it's hard to untangle. I would say that probably at the base, it's, it's more likely that their own personal life experience is what's important because that's what makes them open and responsive to the pleas of others. So if I have personal life experience with something, I'm more likely to consider it to be an issue, more likely to dedicate political time and capital to it. you know. Anything that I do, there's an opportunity cost because I'm losing the opportunity to do something else. So I think that at base, the life experience is very important because if you've had experience with a certain issue, if you've had say difficulty finding childcare or any other number of issues, then you're more open to the idea that there needs to be legislating about it. And so I think that a lot of these women were already based on life experience more more open to it. You can see that in something like uh, the Affordable Care Act when they were negotiating the benefits package there. And during that negotiation, uh, there was discussion about what had to be included because the more I include, the more expensive, right? The the package is, is going to be. But there are certain things that you wanted to have covered. And so there was a discussion about whether, for example, pregnancy should be covered as a a benefit that was a basic benefit that the insurance companies had to offer. And so there was a little bit of a tussle between Debbie Stabenow, who was pushing for it, and John Kyle, who was Republican from Arizona, who was pushing back against it. Uh, And, you know, she had her viral moment where he said, you know, I'm never going to need this. As a, a, you know, as a man, and she said, well, but she, she bets that his mother did, right? So I think that for many of the women who had this experience of uh, <clears throat> in their own life, you know, uh, going through, through pregnancy uh, or other sort of issues that, that women face or the knowledge that women were charged at that time more uh, for insurance than men because pregnancy is expensive, uh, then it was more important to them. So it's also like, what you're willing to give away to? So sometimes it's not that I'm adding something in, but that I'm less willing to uh, give way on a, on a particular issue and say, when something, you know, we have a limited budget, when something's on the chopping block, I'm, I'm more likely to advocate to say, well, this thing has to be kept, right? And if I have personal experience with it, uh, then this is what I want to be kept. In, a very, in the, the very recent negotiations over... Uh, the gun control bill where you had Senator Cornyn and, and, and uh, Senator Tillis and Senator Cinema uh, and Senator Murphy, uh, most people, most of the reporting showed that it was Senator Cinema that was bringing forth the idea of wanting to uh, include something to close what they call the boyfriend loophole related to uh, domestic violence and whether people could get access to a, a gun. So this is just sort of another example of the idea that you know, she might might be more open, right, to that kind of question and decide to make it a priority uh, as opposed to any number of other issues. And, you know, that was an area uh, where, you know, this will be the, first, if it passes the first bill in 30 years to pass uh, related to gun legislation. So it's a very difficult issue for, for members of Congress. So I think having her uh, at the negotiating table Right, made made the outcome different than perhaps had she not been there.
0: And you didn't see any sort of unrelated policy differences between men and women. It sounds like you know unrelated to the, the family aspect or the women's aspect or the children's aspect. You know, whether it's some random part of the regulatory uh, uh, regime or some non-related area, you didn't see any kind of differences in terms of policy outlook.
1: So in my house study, I was focused specifically on these different, these types of issues, and I divided them into sort of social welfare policy that would be healthcare education that maybe you would expect all members to care about, right? All members care about the quality of schools in their district. Uh, and then, and then the, the ones that were really more targeted at, at at women themselves, so something like a, a question of, of pay equity, right, would be much more targeted at women. So I did not look at, say, agriculture policy to see if uh, if if women were uh, you know more likely to promote for soy, soybeans versus wheat or something like that. And I imagine that's a very uh, constituency focused question. Uh, the only area where there might've been some difference in terms of agricultural policy is of course, the agriculture committee also deals with SNAP benefits, which is, uh, you know, your um, food stamp programs and school lunch and things like that. And uh, that would have been incorporated for me into social welfare policy. And there was some difference on that when they were in the majority party. When I did my Senate study, I did broaden out, right? And so, as I mentioned, when you looked at defense policy, women were not, it's thought that women would be more pacifist but women were not more pacifists. they were the same as men and a lot of this was determined by what kind of state did they represent and you know what kind of uh, military bases were there or what kind of defense contractors so very constituency oriented in terms of you know what drives jobs in in a particular state
0: so what about the non-policy related behavior uh in congress you know so For instance, you know, the Senate putting holds on people or filibustering or I don't know, you know, five minute speeches in the House. And are they different in nature than than the men? You know, are there other kinds of differences that you've seen that would, you know, allow you to figure out, you know, guess that it would be a woman versus a man when you look at the uh, some kind of deliverable of Congress, whether it be some procedural activity or some kind of information created by by the member?
1: So there is sort of a, a large literature about whether or not women are more consensus oriented. So in the literature of psychology, uh, women are more consensus oriented. They're less confrontational. They're less aggressive, and so there is some thought that uh, if you had more women in Congress, maybe they would want to behave in a more consensus oriented or more. Bipartisan. But that's
0: only that's only if the those kinds of women get elected, right? <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly. So. Uh, there, is, there have been some studies of state legislatures that have found that, uh, that women have been more consensus oriented, but these are, are more in the early 1990s and I don't think they are as much today. And we're in a very partisan period. So I think the more partisan and the more polarized Congress gets, the more that you need to show yourself to be a partisan fighter to get elected in the first place. So that really reduces the incentive and the sort of the, the room for uh, this idea that women are more consensus oriented. There are certain indicators. So in the Senate, uh, the women are known to have bipartisan dinners with each other uh, on a regular basis. Uh, you have certain women that have been the center of, of Senate gangs. So we just mentioned Kristen Sinema uh, being in a gang. Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski are regularly members of these gangs that try to negotiate policy. Uh, and it might have something to do with their gender, but it also probably has a lot to do with the fact that they are ideologically at the center of the Senate, right? So they are the moderates, and so maybe you know some of it relates to gender, but a lot probably also relates to uh, where they are sort of ideologically positioned within the Senate.
0: Right, and you know, on the program uh, earlier, we we talked to uh, Professor Volden Weisman and I think they did some analysis about uh, the effectiveness or getting, basically getting your legislation into law and the probability of that and how successful you are at that. And, and I think they found that, um, that women, when they were in the minority, uh, had a better, better chance of getting something through. Um, and they chalked it up potentially to the, to the issue you just mentioned. So did you, I, I'm curious what your opinion is on their data and whether you think that makes sense.
1: So I know they do have a, a, a finding where they they studied uh, legislative what they call legislative effectiveness in terms of how productive members of Congress are, and that women were more likely to get action on their bills when they were minority party members. Now, in general, minority party members are less likely to get action on their bills. So you're talking about uh, in a group of people who are less likely to see action on their bills, women were more likely to get some action. And so they attribute that to this idea that women might be more consensus oriented. And so therefore they would be willing to work across the aisle in order to see some of their their goals met. And you certainly hear sort of anecdotal evidence that way that uh, a member might say that, they would you know, let the other person be the lead sponsor or something like this on their idea because they, they just wanna see the bill pass. And certainly in the earlier years when women had much less seniority, I think you probably would see more of that uh, even when they were maybe in the majority because when it comes to something like the Violence Against Women Act, right? We know that President Biden considers that to be his signature legislation. Uh, as well as Chuck Schumer, who was on the House side. And that's because President Biden was chairman of the Judiciary Committee when that passed in the Senate. And Chuck Schumer was chairman of the Subcommittee on Crime when that passed in the House. So the women that would want something to be passed uh, would need to get it by them and uh, get their buy-in, uh, get something into what you call the chairman's mark when it gets marked up. So maybe you can't take personal credit because now it's in the chairman's mark. So it's the chairman's credit, but now it's in the bill, right? And so, so now, now it's it's passed. So, uh, in that way, you might might have seen uh, even I would say even more probably in the uh, early 90s than 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 you see today. Uh, perhaps women being more effective there. The other side of that coin is they find in their study that that women were less effective in the majority as Congress gets more partisan and polarized because that, you know, willingness to fight is more, more valued in current times.
0: Right. So what about in the leadership positions? So, you know, you, you, have, um, some data, I guess, at this point, you know, in terms of committee chairs or in terms of, um, speaker of the house, you know, what is your you know, whips, et cetera, what, what, uh, are there any differences in leadership style between men and women when they're in the, in either chamber?
1: So, uh, in terms of the committees and the committee chairs, you, I think you do see uh, for the Democratic women committee chairs because it's more Democrats that have reached the level of seniority to be able to get the committee chairs. So you have more Democratic women who've been chairs. And when you had right now, you have Rosa DeLauro, who is the, the chair of the Appropriations Committee in the House, Kay Granger is her ranking member, uh, and. On the part of Rosa DeLauro, she has been very active on pushing the child tax credit, on pushing pay equity, on pushing a lot of issues related to women, children and families and prioritizing those issues, which she can do as the chair. So the advantage to being the chair is I control the hearings. I have the chairman's mark, right? So my policy priorities are are the, the committee's priorities. So in that way, there are some cases where you've seen some women utilize their chairmanship to to push some of these kinds of of issues. In terms of the party leadership, there've been really very few women uh, who've reached (coughs) the highest echelons of party leadership. So uh, people might not realize that because Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. And so everybody focuses on Nancy Pelosi. And she certainly has made these issues uh, as her mantra. She always talks about everything is for the children. Uh, so she certainly makes these issues a priority. But in terms of leadership style, as you were discussing before, uh, she is perhaps, she is a consensus builder within her caucus. She knows where everybody is, you know, and she's uh, very good at, at keeping track of people's needs. But I'm certain that Republicans would not describe her as a consensus builder. She very much shuts them out. Uh, she's been described to be more, uh, her leadership style more similar to uh, Newt Gingrich, the very famous uh, Republican speaker, then to Tom Foley, who would have been the previous Democratic speaker in terms of her her leadership style uh, and her level of of partisanship. Below that, the highest women have gotten in the party leadership structure is conference chair. So on the Republican side, uh, several women have become the conference chair. You had Kathy McMorris Rogers, uh, Liz Cheney. Uh, And then now Elise Stefanik have all been conference chair. So is Deborah Price from Ohio. Uh, And, you know, that's a party messaging position. They're helping to craft the message of the party, but it's not a policy leadership position as as much. Uh, So those things are really kept more to uh, the speaker, the majority leader, the, the whip.
0: Got it. Um, in terms of how they get there in the first place, can we talk a little bit about your perspective on the election side? Um, you know, What do you see there and how does it impact on the women uh, in Congress?
1: So there's a lot of work about the fact that women are less likely to run for Congress than men. Uh, the literature is called Political Ambition. It's associated with Jennifer Lawless at University of Virginia and some others. Uh, and in that literature, what they find is that women who are in similar sort of positions to men in the business world and the legal field are just less likely to throw their hat in the ring. They're less likely to feel themselves qualified to run for office. So that means women have to be asked more. Uh, and so that's part of why we see fewer women in office. And then there has been a, a large amount of study looking at uh, other barriers. Uh, besides Maybe they're smarter,
0: you know it's crazy to run for office these days.
1: Yes, it's very expensive and you have to be willing to subject yourself to, you know, the
0: suffering, the suffering. Yeah.
1: So, uh, so, there. so the other side of the literature in terms of looking at, at electing women is about fundraising, because if I want to run for Congress, I need, you know, somewhere north of one, two million dollars for a House seat. <clears throat> I need multiple millions if I want to win a Senate seat. That's pretty daunting for anyone. Uh, and so, When we look at the the fundraising on the Democratic side, they built more of a fundraising uh, apparatus to elect women earlier. So you had EMILY's List, which was for electing pro-choice Democratic women is a huge organization. And then you've had other groups that have have come up since. And you've had some women who led the uh, House and Senate Democratic campaign committees who were particularly devoted to electing more women and and, uh, campaigning for women. More recently, you see this on the Republican side. So on the Republican side, at Stefanik particularly uh, has been very engaged in trying to uh, elect more, more Republican women to Congress. They have a few organizations outside PACs that are, are dedicated to that, uh, but they're nowhere on the, the size and scope of an EMILY's List. And part of that is because the Republican electorate is not as responsive to saying that you need to elect more, more women particularly. So it's really very recent that that they've done more of this. So in research that I've done with Karen Kitchens and with Danielle Thompson, we were looking at what kind of women can get elected, sort of to your question before, are you gonna be more consensus oriented? Only if a consensus oriented person can get elected, right? So uh, what we find in terms of who can get elected, what we're looking particularly in the primary races where I have to really build my own coalition, uh, it's much more likely that Democratic women can raise the money than Republican women could. Uh, And among donors, uh, Democratic female donors were very interested in electing more women over and above the things that you would expect. So things like, uh, is this a a competitive race? Is this a quality candidate, which is generally measured as have they run for previous office? Uh, Democratic women would support Democratic female candidates with their donations, you know, over and, and above that. However, uh, more donors are men than, than women. But what we see is that the Democratic women actually raised more money in, in the primary. It did not translate into any difference in electoral outcomes. So Democratic women were not more likely to win, but they, were more, they raised more money overall than, than Democratic men. Republicans Republican women and Republican men, generally there wasn't a difference in uh, their ability to fundraise, except when you looked at what we call those quality candidates who were who challengers and open seats. So the people who had run for previous office, then there was a difference where Republican women were raising less than Republican men, which is probably why uh, Elise Stefanik and EPAC and these other organizations are focused on trying to help more of these uh, Republican women raise the money to win a Republican primary so that they can get more uh, women into office. But these days I need to uh, be, you know, somebody who conforms to what the party's primary electorate is, is looking for. That's the type of candidate that's going to get elected.
0: So it sounds like it's primarily ideology driven with a little bit of flavor of on the Democrat side, um, women might be more likely to support women.
1: Yes, so on the Democratic side, women are, are a little more likely to support women, but they want they want liberal women. They don't want you know moderate and conservative women, particularly when you're looking at individual donors. So individual donors they donate because they want to see uh, candidates who agree with them more on policy. That's why they donate, as opposed to a political action committee that might donate if I'm a if I'm a particular uh, corporate pack. I'm donating because you know, I have business in front of this committee. And if you're on this committee, I'm going to donate to you because I want you to think positively uh, towards me. So I'm a little less ideologically driven and a little more, you know, pragmatically driven about who who's on the committee seats.
0: And on the Republican side, you know, the high quality candidates you mentioned who are women who didn't raise as much money as, the, as comparable men. What do you think the reasoning is behind that? Just, um, it's a perception about what they did in office before? Or is it just... Is it un, unexplainable or you know, what's the, what do you think the driving factor is there?
1: Yeah, so it's it's hard to know uh, without without uh, doing interviews, but some of the ideas that have been sort of floated are that people generally have an idea that women are more liberal because particularly uh, democratic women are more prominently covered in the, the media. Uh, and if I'm perceived as more liberal as a Republican that might help me in the general election but it certainly will not help me in the primary election. Uh, where they want to have the, the more conservative candidate. So if a Republican woman needs to spend more time proving her conservative credentials, uh, or now you know, proving that she's a, a, a fighter, uh, that might be something that would you know, contribute to it being more more difficult.
0: Great, well, I think it's time for us to move on to phase two of our discussion, where we t- I ask questions that I've asked all of our guests. If you're ready for the next phase, shall we move yes. on? Yes. The first one here, I think, is quite uh, interesting, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation on uh, the concept of representation and back to Mayhew. So, uh, you know, what do you think congressional representation should mean? Is it everybody in the district? Should there be extra attention to certain groups that you might identify with? Is it the current constituents? Is it future constituents? Who? who what does representation mean or should it mean?
1: So I really like uh, an article by Jane Mansbridge called Rethinking Representation, where she talks about the different ways that we think about representation. So of course people think about you know delegates and trustees and things like this, but she also talks about that the traditional model is something called promissory representation. A member makes a promise and then the constituents judge it in, in the next election. But she says that there's also these other ideas Anticipatory representation where I'm actually as the member I'm looking towards pleasing the constituents in the next election, not the the promises I made in the last election. Uh, Gyroscopic representation, which is, I tell you that you and I share values and that's why you should elect me because we share values and I think that one is probably more realistic about how voters generally think I don't think they're sitting around studying policy positions. And then uh, she also talks about surrogate representation, which is I'm standing in for, for a group. So that might be, uh, I'm, I'm standing in for, uh, if we've been talking about women, it might be that you know, women across the country could also come to a female representative and you know, hope that she might represent their, their interests. But what I find particularly interesting about this whole idea is, I think it's very important that members represent constituents But I also think it's very important, this idea of interests versus preferences and how members go about explaining what they're doing and deliberating. So I think the idea of the promissory, the, the anticipatory representative that she talks about makes space for the deliberation between the member and the constituent. And Richard Fenno talked about this as building trust. How do I build trust with my constituents so that they would give me leeway for taking difficult votes. So I think that the members are elected to represent the interests of the district and they should do that, but they have to be able to discern what are the interests versus current preferences. And then they have to be able to both be educated by the constituents and educate the constituents on what they are learning about policy and about issues uh, as a member of Congress who is elected, you know, to take decisions for the constituents that the constituents can't vote on themselves.
0: But it sounds like that you take a, a pretty, uh, you take the, the, uh, the, the view that members make judgments, right, and make judgments about what the interests of their constituents are, and you take that notion seriously as a, uh, as a point of representation. Is that right?
1: yes because i think that the member needs to consult broadly to find out what the constituents concerns and interests are so they need the you know the fact that they are elected from a district and not just elected nationally means that they should be you know taking in, into account and understanding the the needs of their district and the interests of their constituents but then also the fact that they are there you know, learning from experts studying policy, they should be bringing that knowledge back to the constituents and engaging in dialogue with the constituents to convince them as to why, uh, you know, they voted a certain way and why the constituents should be uh, supportive of that.
0: And when you say the word constituents, it sounds like you're implying everybody in a district or everybody in a state versus a narrower conception of that interest, that, that constituency. Is that right?
1: Right. So, I mean, Richard Fennell, of course, has the idea of the concentric circles, and your largest is the geographic constituency. And I think ideally, you know, the members should at least be speaking to the geographic constituency. Obviously, they're going to get more support from their reelection constituency. Nobody's going to be able to please all comers, but you should be willing to engage with all comers and, and you know, be trying to take the pulse of and get an understanding of uh, the different parts of of your constituency.
0: Great. So next question is, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? And this is more about how much time in D.C. versus back in the home district. Uh, And while they're in D.C., what should they be doing with what proportions of their time?
1: So I think that it it would be beneficial for Congress to spend more time on policy in general, whether that is within Congress or in the district. So in general, I think that there's too much time spent on fundraising and too much time spent on uh, messaging and social media and and these kinds of of things. And Frances Lee has a very important book uh, called Insecure Majorities. And one thing that struck me in that book is she shows how the leadership staff has increased related to the media and the messaging staff uh, and the policy oriented staff has declined. So I think on the whole, if I could change things, I would, I would focus more on Congress beefing up its policymaking abilities uh, and, and focusing more on the policymaking aspect and the oversight aspect of Congress and a little less on the messaging and the fundraising aspect of Congress.
0: So do you have like a, a preference, you know, one week on, one week off or two weeks on in DC, one week off or three, two, do you have a, a, a favorite?
1: So I can't say that I have a, a, a favorite in terms of that organization, because especially now that we're in the hybrid world, uh, you can do, do more uh, remotely. So I think, you know, you could do a policy-oriented committee hearing in someone's district within the committee, and you would be focused on policy and you would be learning about that district. And I would see that as a, a very good use of, of time. Uh, logistically, it's probably generally easier if you if you spend a concentrated period in DC as opposed to you know coming in flying in Monday, Tuesday, you know, going home Thursday. Uh, so that probably would work, would work uh, better for policy orientation. But I think generally uh, the big issue right now is that you have, a, you have an ethos where you need to change the, the norms of Congress to value the policymaking side more because there's a general feeling that Washington is, is, is a swamp, right? It's described as a swamp. Uh, and that's the place where policymaking goes on. So if the member wants to get reelected, they want to show themselves as apart from the swamp. And this is a, a long-standing, growing issue. So you know, back in the in the 1980s, Morris Fiorina was writing about the fact that members of Congress win by running against the institution, and so was was Richard Fenno. So as long as I'm taking it as a point of pride that I sleep in my office and I don't have a home here. Uh, And I'm a part, right? I have values that are, you know, wherever I'm from values and not Washington, D.C. values. I think you need to realign that uh, to make it okay to spend your time working on policy and spend less of your time uh, going on, uh, you know, cable news channels and things like that.
0: Next question is, how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? Are you... uh committee person, you think they should have that? Should they be behind closed doors sometimes with some privacy or should everything be transparent? Should we have more floor debate? You know, where do you see this happening?
1: So if you're trying to make policy, I I think it, it would be beneficial for more work to get done in committees than is currently done so that you would have more voices involved in the process and so that you encourage the development of expertise within a committee that you wanna incentivize members of committee to develop policy expertise with the idea that they will have a chance to influence policy in that area, which they get less of if it's all being taken out and and put towards the the leadership. Uh, In terms of the making of policy, because everything is so uh, transparent these days and, and, and covered, when policy really happens, it does seem to happen behind the closed doors. So either in a gang in the Senate or in negotiations among party leadership and the president, and it's all very you hush-hush know, and, and uh, nobody knows anything until, until a final package is released. So I think that in the current climate being so partisan and polarized, there needs to be more spaces for members to deliberate behind closed doors, as, as nice as it is for the public uh, and researchers to have things to count and, and, and observe. Uh, it would probably be beneficial for there to be more uh, deliberation done in, in private if you want to achieve policy results.
0: Right. Next question is, what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years?
1: So as you can see, since I, uh, I'm focused on the policy side, I think there should be more investment in beefing up congressional policy chops. And so that would be things like Uh, putting more investment into the Congressional Research Service, the Congressional Budget Office, perhaps restarting the Office of Technology Assessment since technology is so very important now, Uh, putting more investment into congressional staff, both in terms of how much you pay staff so that they don't decide that they want to go off into the uh, various sort of private sector worlds that that pay much more uh, in terms of how you support them and provide them with training, but also in an effort to broaden out the type of people that you are able to hire as staff. So I, I think it would be beneficial for Congress to be recruiting policy staff in their in their districts to be recruiting staff from uh, a wider variety of backgrounds. Right now, it's very much sort of a who you know kind of a, a of an atmosphere, uh, and so if you were able to broaden out in terms of of where you recruit for staff, uh, paying the interns, which I know that they're trying to do uh, in a lot of cases because not everybody can afford, uh, Washington DC is extremely expensive to come and work for free uh, in the summer. And if that's a stepping stone to then getting a a, a position. So I think trying to do things to support staff development, to support staff expertise uh, would be very beneficial. Similarly, in electing members of of Congress, uh, there's a lot of work by Nicholas Carnes on how to get more people to be able to run from working class backgrounds, to not have to be able to self-fund. And in terms of women, there's an organization called Vote Mama that's trying to get more women with young children to get elected by trying to get legislatures to pass the ability to use your campaign money for childcare. Uh, so not every state uh, allows that. So some of these kinds of reforms could actually have an impact on the type of person who's willing to put their hat in the ring, which you know could then impact uh, who's running for office. And if you're there uh, to do policy, uh, as or if you're there to you know uh, be more of a of a message oriented media star.
0: Right. Next question is: What book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform?
1: So I think I I mentioned it. Uh, I would say Francis Lee's Insecure Majorities because she points out how uh, competitiveness we generally think of as a as is only a good. So when we talk about redistricting reform, people will talk about the fact that uh, that redistricting has made it so that. Uh, elections are less competitive, right? And that that's a a bad thing if if someone is is secure in, in their district. But the downside to competitiveness as an aggregate institution is that if the majority and the minority party see the possibility of winning the majority in the next election all the time, then they never have any incentive to cooperate with each other. And that it's created an incentive structure where messaging becomes more important. And so she points out that you have more uh, staff devoted to messaging than to policy, more more party-oriented staff, that the nature of the Senate and the mending behavior on the Senate floor has changed so that there are more messaging amendments that they expect to lose on uh, than amendments where you're really trying to pass them to influence policy. So that that sort of aspect of how the the larger political sphere has changed has had real effects on how policy you know behavior uh, occurs and so I think that it's important to keep that in mind with any kind of reform that we're we're trying to implement
0: great well the last question is really about your research in the future what do you have on the horizon and what do you uh, where do you see your research going in the long run
1: so I like to research about uh, policy activity and how uh, different different combinations of members affect policy activity, and so I'm very focused right now on the Republican Party and Republican women, because the parties as they've polarized, and the Republican Party has become more conservative. Republican women have been really changed the most among members, so. In the early 90s, a lot of the Republican women were much more moderate uh, from Northeastern states or uh, from Ohio and the Midwest. And now the Republican Party's sort of center of of focus is the South and the West. And a lot of those women that are being elected are are much more conservative. And so I'm very interested to know uh, how that change then affects the type of policies that these women are advocating for and then their ability to succeed within the caucus. So I'm doing some work right now with Danielle Thompson looking at bill sponsorship from uh, the early 90s uh, up to today. And we're finding that the more moderate women were certainly much more focused on the things that we've talked about uh, related to uh, women's rights or policy related to children and families but that even in these current times where you have more conservative women that they do offer policy in this area not as much as the moderate women did but they do offer more policy in this area and they're more likely to have success than the moderate women did because they are closer to the center of their caucus in terms of you know what the the caucus is going to support in policy so i'm very interested in generally looking at sort of the that interrelationship between gender party, partisanship, and ideology. And so that's where my research focus is right now.
0: Excellent. Well, Professor Suarez, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, and best of luck with coming work.
1: Thank you very much for having me.